we'd like to remind you that if you are experiencing symptoms of a heart attack, stroke, or any life-threatening medical emergency, please call 911. Please do not delay seeking treatment during the COVID-19 epidemic. Most Providence emergency rooms are open, and CDC-required safety measures are being taken to protect patients and hospital staff. If you are unsure of your symptoms, please use our telehealth services and speak with a healthcare professional that can better assess your symptoms and provide direction on the best course of action. Please do not let the worry of COVID-19 cause delay in seeking out treatment if you are experiencing a heart attack or stroke. Every minute treatment is delayed can be fatal. Thank you. Before we start, I want our listeners to know that the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. Always consult a healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. Thank you for tuning into the Future of Health on Dash Radio during this coronavirus pandemic. We're lucky to have many experts around our COVID-19 topic and many guest hosts. Remember to visit coronavirus.providence.org for more information. I'm your host, Carlos Watson, the editor of Ozzy. Uh, I'm joined today uh, by two terrific guests. Of course, Dr. Rod Hockman, uh, the CEO of the Providence St. Joseph Health System, and uh, Mark Cuban, whose uh, Mavericks are about to make us smile again, uh, uh, has been involved in business and healthcare for a long time, and uh, and we're going to have a good conversation with both of you. Um, uh, Rod, why don't I, I start with you? Uh, clearly a a crazy last couple of months, uh, a difficult for lots of people. What surprised you the most uh, about what has happened to healthcare during this uh, COVID-19 pandemic? Well, yeah, I define the world as BC and AC before COVID and after COVID. And, you know, for everyone, you know, we actually had the first case of COVID-19 at one of our hospitals. And that was back, believe it or not, in January 21st. Um, so that really got us going early. And the rest of the country was still looking at, what are you guys worried about? And, you know, then we had the nursing uh, outbreak in Kirkland, Washington. So we really got on this pretty quickly, recognizing that it was going to be a problem. Uh, I think the, the thing that surprised us, the extent to which this spread so quickly. And the fact was it didn't spread. It was actually here. And then just the, the response and, you know, this, this interface between healthcare politics and all of that. It, for most of us as physicians and stuff, we're not used to a lot. Of, we get some of that, you know, but but it's been pretty, pretty extensive to say the least. Um, Mark, I was interested to see the moment this happened, a lot of people froze, obviously a lot of heartbreak, but I saw you right out there. You like, you jumped right into the conversation right away. Uh, um, uh, why did you do it? W what made you put yourself right in the middle of the conversation, uh, particularly as a non-medical guy? Um, uh, you weren't shy about about engaging. Well, first, it was just happenstance. The Mavs were playing the Nuggets, and we just happened to be playing on national television when the news hit that the NBA season was being suspended. Um, and that kind of was the, the fulcrum for what was going to happen going forward. And I was just stunned. And you know, and, and obviously we were aware of what was going on and literally coming out for that game. I didn't know if we would have 500 people in the stands or a full house. And it turns out we had a full house. So I thought, OK, maybe the wisdom of the crowds, maybe it's not as bad as, as I anticipated. Um, but obviously, as we got into it and players tested positive, the season was, was suspended. And, you know, I had given it a lot of thought of what would happen if we were suspended prior to that. And so when I got interviewed, I just told everybody what was on my mind, that we were going to take care of people, that this wasn't about the NBA, that this was bigger than basketball, and we had to worry about our health more than anything else. You, you know, Mark, that's interesting that you say that out loud, because in retrospect, I do think uh, Rudy Gobert, the Utah Jazz player who ended up testing positive, that was, all, that was one of the key turning points in terms of, I think, people taking it more seriously and different. And, and now, again, it feels like sports is playing a key role and maybe the opening up conversation. So I think it both played a role in people recognizing the seriousness uh, and the opening up. How do you how do you think about that? I mean, I don't want to lob what feels like a softball, but but it, I do as I sit here and think about it. Well, yeah, I'm, obviously we need something. You know, we're all going stir crazy, even with some of the states opening up or all the states opening up to some point now. Um, we need something to root for. We need something to get excited about. We need something communal, and and sports can offer that. So if we can do it safely then we'll come back, right? And the good news is, and I'll defer to Rod on this, you know, there's there's improving news about vaccines, there's improving news about therapies. And then, but on the flip side, there's there's always new uncertainties that are popping up every day as well. So we seem to be taking two steps forward and only one step back, 
but what you know safety is always going to be first um, Rod, talk to me a little bit about about the history of viruses and your experience as a practicing physician as someone who's responsible for 13 million customers and patients you got 100,000 caregivers who work for you have you seen something like this if not exactly like this if whether it was um, HIV or whether it was the Hong Kong flu or other things have you been involved in, in oh, these sure. viruses or pandemics before? Sure. So, you know, I've been a physician for 42 years. So when I was an intern back in Boston, we were taking care of patients and we didn't know what was quite wrong with them. And that was living through the whole HIV thing. And we didn't even know how to protect ourselves. We didn't have any concept of that. So we really had a feel for that. I gave a talk about five years ago and I said I was worried about two viruses. And everyone looked at me. I said, one are cyber viruses and the second are RNA viruses. The crowd got the first one because everyone was looking at cyber community. They didn't quite understand the other. And I talked a little bit about SARS, about MERS, and about the, the nature of these types of viruses, their proclivity to spread, and all of those issues around that. So a lot of us in the medical community have been worrying about this for a long time. And it didn't really quite surprise us. It wasn't a question of whether, it was a question of when. Uh, I think the medical response has been good. I, I cringe when I watch the news because what happens is they take everything like it's gospel. And those of us in healthcare know about half of what we say first is probably going to change. So we don't say it that loudly. The good news is I'm really, really optimistic about the vaccine research that's going on. We really have the most brilliant minds going working on it. And there are a number of things that are happening scientifically that'll get us to a vaccine earlier than we ever have. So a lot of hope there. What I worry more about than whether we get the vaccine is that are we getting ready to deliver it to over 300 million Americans? Do we have the syringes, the needles, and also just the logistics? You know, when we have an influenza, we, influ we probably uh, vaccinate about 80 to 100 million Americans. Now we got to do everyone. I'd be, if I was in government, I would be worried working on that now to understand who gets it first, where do they get it, how do they get it, because it, it, it's going to take us a while to do that. And that's our frustration is that this response time and getting the logistics ready for what we know we're going to have to do isn't there. And yeah. But, you know, I'm optimistic on vaccines. I think the treatments are getting better. I think our testing is getting better, particularly understanding who has antibodies and who doesn't. Some of the antibody tests are better than others. Uh, and the other one for Mark is, you know, to get the players out there, I'd want to make sure I, before I got them on the court that I've tested them yep. so that I, I know that I don't have any positives before the players go out on the field. So they're going to really need some really close follow-up and whatnot in order to make sure they feel safe, you know, playing playing out on, on the yeah, court. We'll take, Rob, we'll take the Hotel California approach where we'll quarantine everybody in, in one right. environment you know, Hotel California, you check in, but you can never leave. Um, and, and so, yeah, we're going to be very strict. This is not going to be traditional basketball. We'll play in one or two locations where people, you know, there'll be no fans. There'll be just a, essential personnel and even limited to that. And um, players will, and everybody will be tested. And then once you're, you know, I think what ends up happening, we play X number of games to go with, before we go into the playoffs. Those teams that aren't in the playoffs end their season. And then each round of the playoffs reduces the number of participants. So it kind of, you know, self-protects itself once we, once we quarantine them. Mark, let me jump in here a little bit because uh, there, there are a couple of, of interesting pieces here. And Rod, you served up a, a, a bunch of them. Um, but but talk about the government response, Mark. And I'm not looking. I'm not trying to set up an easy uh, uh, hit job or critique of the president. Uh, um, uh, but but, I, but I'm legitimately asking. It is a complex task to deal with the pandemic, to deal with kind of the economic tragedy that's accompanied it. To think about you know how do you deliver not just to 300 million Americans, but obviously you've got a global oh. you know, global spread. So, so, so where do you think the president and the administration have gotten it right? Like what gives you hope as someone who thinks and runs complex organizations? And, and then where do they go next to get better to make sure that a year from now, whether or not they're in office, we all feel like, you know, we got better during this? So there's a couple things there. And rather than trying to second guess, because look, when when you have imperfect information, you make imperfect decisions. So <clears throat> no matter who was in the office, they were going to do things wrong. 
But as you look forward, and I'll, and I'll parlay off of what Rod said in terms of logistics, right? On one hand, I think we will have a vaccine. I agree, you know, in reading some of the research and everything and reading the documentation on bio, biologic simulations using AI and that's speeding up the process. You know, there's a lot of unique things going on. But I think where everybody's falling down right now, and Rod's going to have to face this more than anybody, we're going through this 180 turnover where we've gone, we're going from most people having um, employer provided health care that at least gives them a shot at dealing with getting a vaccine or getting the support and dealing with the uncertainties of what comes next after we have a vaccine to what is it, 150 million people are on employer based health care. Um, prior. Now you take 39 million off of that as of now. Now all the numbers flip and hospitals really are going to have to have a challenge or going to have a huge challenges because they're, those people that, you know, 39 million people who probably already had employer-based health care now are going to be on Medicaid, maybe Medicare, maybe the ACA and the economics of hospitals um, aren't really being addressed and the logistics of the expectations of hospitals aren't being addressed. The financial issues of dealing with all that above, because as much as we'd like to think that we can create logistics for testing and tracking and tracing and follow up, unless we really have a, a plan for all the hospitals to address these issues financially and logistically, because the expectation from all of us is going to be to turn to our local hospitals, we're going to have a mess. You know, and I don't want to put words into Rod's mouth, obviously, because he's got to deal with this more closely than anybody. But that's actually my greatest concern because our, our healthcare system is not designed to address any of this yet. And I haven't heard anything from the administration or candidates for that matter on how we're going to reformulate the economics of hospital systems to deal with these things. Um, Rod, it's interesting. Mark, I, I, uh, what Mark's raising, I had a conversation with Lloyd Miner, who's probably a friend of yours. Yeah. Uh, the dean of Stanford, uh, yeah. who, run, who runs obviously a, a big set of hospitals and programs there. And he was talking about the, this digital health uh, revolution and how much this COVID thing is going to force that forward. Are, are we going to see more digital health, maybe less physical infrastructure in order to try and efficiently um, uh, deliver good health care to, uh, as Mark is saying, many more people? Sure. sure. I, I think there are two, two parts of this. Mark is absolutely right on. We've looked at COVID in these different waves. The first thing was to take care of the COVID patients, figure out how to do that, take care of our caregivers, get through that first tranche that we're, we're, we're seeing some of that wind down a little bit now. The second is all those people that we put off all their health care, uh, half the number of strokes and heart attacks have our health facilities. Guess what? they didn't go away. They're out there. So we're seeing now trying to catch up with taking care of people who put off their health care. We've seen opioid usage going up through the group because someone who had to have their hip done hasn't been able to get their hip replaced, all of that. So this next phase now is to try to catch up with all the health care that's been put off. Then the next wave that Mark alluded to is, guess what? Now everyone's lost their health care insurance. So what was there before? So we're going to have a lot of people looking for health care, but no funding for it. So that's the next part that we see. We're already modeling that out. So we see that as the, the third part of this thing that no one and you know has wants to deal with, no one's thought about. How do we fill in all these gaps once people have lost their insurance, their COBRA is gone, everything else? So I think that's a that's an important question that we need to start talking about with that's the, the biggest question we have in my opinion rod because this is the future of healthcare. i mean yep. the, the way you look you know according to all the numbers that you guys have published you know you lose nine percent on on medicare right yep. and that's going to be your biggest provider i'm one of these healthcare geeks i read the medpac transcripts i read medical loss i, I read the um <laughs> medicare healthcare reports and then do little spreadsheets on it so <laughs> we got challenging you know and how you do cost reporting and all this kind of stuff so it's going to be really, really, really difficult to try to figure this out. And I mean, it's something that the the candidates and the, the incumbents have got to focus on, and they're not even thinking about it. And I brought it up to the, the White House, you know, in, in my role with the Economic Council yesterday. And it was just like, you know, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. And that's going to be a disaster. It, it will. I think so that is. 
you're, you're, you're right on target. We're trying to offer up some solutions to the feds. One of the ideas that we had was this concept, could we offer every American, regardless of whether they're insured or not, primary care coverage? So that you know the primary care doctors can know what they're being paid, but we assure that 330 million Americans get great primary care, regardless of their ability to pay. And it's not that expensive to do that, right. but it would really, as we've seen with COVID, if people had really good base care, we'd be in such a better position. So we're actually putting together white paper. Yeah, you need, you need a primary care, you know, even if they're capitated, right? You need someone to act right. as a gatekeeper so not everybody's coming to the emergency room and just overwhelming you Yeah, and just getting yeah. primary care. And this yeah. gets to Carlos's question. You know, Carlos, we're doing 15,000 virtual visits a day now, 15,000. We were Before this, we were doing, well, if you did 1,000, that was a big day. And it's going through the roof. So I think substantially this whole digitization of healthcare has finally, it's, it's there, it's gonna be with us. And I think people, a lot of people like the virtual, they like that ability to get care where they are, when they need it, how they need it, and have that kind of access. So I think we've crossed that, that river. That's one of the good things that's actually come out of this whole crisis. Hey, hey, Rod, Mark, uh, keep going. I'm going to geek out with you for a minute on some of these policy ideas. If, if either of you were in office right now, uh, in addition to the uh, uh, mandating um, or, or providing uh, primary care for everyone, what are two or three other things uh, that you think would systemically improve uh, the healthcare situation, uh, including not only better outcomes, but addressing some of the cost issues? Give me, give me a couple of other ideas. Go ahead, Rod. Oh, sure. What I what I've done, you know, what we were hoping, you know, we didn't think ACA was perfect by any means, you know, and a lot of us in healthcare said, well, it's a start. Let's figure out how to do it. We're really we're closing the gap at getting coverage for everyone. Expanded Medicaid, that and in those states that we expanded Medicaid, we actually saw healthcare improve. Uh, outcomes were better, all of the things that we wanted. And then how do you fill the gaps for folks uh, that aren't insured or kind of fall in the middle? So we had a whole bunch of ideas on how to do that, but then that got derailed. And you know what I look at is there are two extremes here. One is, was the re repeal and replace, and then we went to Medicare for all. And either one of those two extremes wasn't where we thought we needed to go. So. Practically speaking, we need to fill some of those gaps and get coverage for people that's not employer-based, but isn't just, let's just throw them into the Medicare plan. So, so have, Rod, I'm, I'm going to give you the answer there. And sure. I, I had a study that was just finished with the RAND report before the pandemic hit. So the numbers aren't all 100% valid, but I, my company self-insured. So I asked right. the question, what if the United States of America self-insured? And effectively, if under the ACA, in addition to the one or two options you had, there was a third option where the government basically offered a program. And here's effectively what it comes down to. It's called the 10 plan. And, uh, and what it says is no matter how much money, no matter how little or how much you make, you never pay more than 10% of your income for all your health care, period. And it's on a means tested basis so that if you're under 250% of the poverty level, you pay a $25 copay, nothing else. If you're above that, then it's graduated 3% if you make 40,000, 5% if you make 60,000, et cetera, up to 10%. But the key element here is you don't start paying premiums until you use the system. So you don't have to pay into the system because what's insurance? Insurance is just effectively acting as a bank and then you have to beg the insurance companies to get your money back. The government has the treasury, so they don't, they don't need that banking function. So um, shortcutting it, Rand came back and said, you'd be able to cover the then population of 45 million people under the ACA for about break even what the costs are for the ACA for that population. Right. But for the users, you'd save $63 billion. And so I'll, I'll send you a copy of it. It works. And the RAND company, once we're able to publish it, when we're on the other side of this and update the numbers, it creates that alternative that you're talking about where people have a safety net. If you're below that 250%, you're covered, it's, it's effectively single payer. If you're above 250%, it's means tested, but you don't pay premiums until you use the system. And the numbers work according to RAND. Well, there are two parts to it. I, th I think the one part is to make sure that all Americans have some sort of coverage, 
that, but then the next issue is they got to make sure they have access. Yes. Because a lot of the problems with ACA and even with the Medicare program is I have Medicaid, but no one's going to see me. Right. And then we got to figure out on this whole afford, you know, we had to make healthcare more affordable. I mean, I'm going to be the chair of the American Hospital Association next year. And one of the things that we're on is that healthcare has to be more affordable. We recognize that on our side of it, that it's just, it's out of proportion. We're going to have to do something about that because that's the other side. The other two elements are access and affordability. And we really have to work on that to figure out how. And that's somewhat what, Carlos, you were talking about. We think with virtual, there are other ways to kind of get at this affordability issue. Uh, as a clinician, what works, what doesn't work. We have so many therapies. You know, this is the most, we're the most over-medicated country in the world. Uh, it, it's, it's insane. You know, we see patients that come into our clinics that have eight or nine or 10 medicines. And half the time, they don't need most of them. So there's a whole bunch of on the clinical side that we feel we could do to make medicine better and more affordable, which is which is what we really are want to dig into. And I think, Mark, if we start where you're coming from, let's at least get everyone covered some way, shape or form. Then we got to dig into the affordability issue and get real about what works, what doesn't work. How do we deliver care? What works? All of those. Yeah, yeah the clinical side obviously is critical, and and you know doctors now, and you know better. But one of my best friends does a lot of health, uh, does a lot of um, doctor support on burnout and stuff like that. And it's it's very challenging. It's very difficult to practice medicine these days because the emphasis is all on financial. Particularly, you're seeing yeah. private equity buy practices and do roll ups and make this about cash on cash returns, and that's the antithesis of healthcare. And then on the other side, you know when you start reading those Medicare cost reports and oh. you realize that they throw in everything but the kitchen sink to try to influence what the rates they get are from CMS, you know, that has its own set of challenges as well. And so I think we've got to deal with it on the delivery side and what we expect from our doctors because we're putting them under too much pressure, making it difficult to practice medicine. And then on the flip side, how we cost things out, right? Because yeah. until you deal with the actual true costs, then it's very hard to really convert that into pricing. Absolutely. And Mark, you know, I, I have to say, I am so impressed that you actually read the Medicare cost report. You know, oh, yeah. that's what we all do before I'll tell you, we go Rod, to I'll bed. tell you some of the things I did, uh, and I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why I read them. I, I put out this hypothesis, and I sent this to a really far-left um, think tank, um, an economist, and I said, look at the city of Toronto and look at the city of New York. The city of Toronto has the same um, real estate costs, the, we, they pay the same amount for doctors. They pay the same amount for, for swabs and all their overhead and beds and everything. Yet what the, what the city of uh, what a hospital in Toronto charges the province of Ontario for healthcare is far less than what a hospital in New York charges. And I wanted to try to understand why, because they should be about the same because all the overhead and associated costs are effectively exactly the same as it turns out. The difference is in how they cost report. We use a lot of activity cost reporting. They use actual cost reporting. And that deals, that gets to the heart of the difference in pricing. Because I didn't want to, I wanted to try to have a better understanding. And that took us into looking at all the Medicare cost reports and all that kind of fun stuff. It's, it's riveting. riveting. Mark, <laughs> never, if you and I were designing the U.S. healthcare system and you just look at the payment structure, you, you couldn't even conjure up how you could come up with this craziness. Oh, no, you know, it's ridiculous. Things called charge masters. And they're designed, they're, we hate them, but they're designed around an insane system that you basically have to put all these costs here to get paid X and Y. And it's so confusing because there's no correlation between price and what people actually pay. And so except I for your people, customer walking in, you're the only one that gets stuck with the charge master. Right, problem. right. So, so right? it's kind of like if you walked into a restaurant and depending on what your insurance is, you're going to pay about 10 different ways. Well, you know, if you're, you know, if you come into our place, you don't have insurance, we're going to take care of you. And we, we do a billion yeah. and a half dollars of free and unsubsidized care a year. Uh, if you have the blue, blue cross blue shield, you know, you're going to pay, X dollars, right? And you're actually going to end up subsidizing. You and I, with our self-insured, all of that we do, we subsidize the rest of the country taking care of our people. And so yep. it's this crazy cost-shifting 
system that we have that all of us believe is insane has to be changed. There's no yeah, question. I agree. I did. I asked a simple question of CMS. I said, okay, MedPAC, when they set the rates and the increases, go back and look at a benchmark. And some of those benchmarks were set in 1993 and 2003. And even in the MedPAC trans, um, um, transcriptions, they say they don't know what the benchmarks are or how they're relevant, but they have to use them. I mean, yep. so you have all these crazy pricing scenarios that they're they're using to set the price for everybody, and they don't know how or where they got to the price. Yeah. The, the, other, the other thing, Mark, I don't know if in all your readings whether you've ever looked at the Dartmouth Atlas. The Dartmouth Atlas takes all the Medicare data from every county in the United States and looks at usage. So it'll look at a county in Texas versus a county in Wisconsin or in Washington state and say for the same population, age adjusted, everything else, why are there five times the number of cardiac caths in X county yeah. versus somewhere else? It's crazy. And this variability of care makes absolutely no sense. So just even on the clinical side, you know, and just, you know, just get online, you can kind of look county by county. Yep. And, and, and those are the kind of things that we have to kind of put a bright light on and say, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. And exactly. So, so question to both of you guys, when I hear you describe this, doesn't feel like it's going to be easily solvable. <laughs> it feels like a convoluted uh, system. No. It sounds like there are going to be a lot of people who are beneficiaries. Mark, you're describing a new group of entrants and private equity guys who may also not have an incentive for it to get None. solved. No, they shouldn't be there. They should not be allowed in the game at all. And I'm not saying this should be public. That's not what I'm saying at all. But we've got, look, to me, and Rod may disagree, this all comes down to cost, right? How we cost things out. Because CMS and others are focused on pricing and pricing transparency with the perspective that if everybody looks at the same price, looks at pricing and availability from different sources, then they'll pick the best price. But that's just not how people choose their health care. Right. I mean, when when you your son or daughter breaks a leg, you're going to the closest you know opportunity for care. Um, and then on the flip side, though, I've done a lot of work on the actual costs. Right. And, you know, the way hospitals and I'm not saying this is Rob, but just across the board generally, you know, they they throw in the kitchen sink. Right. There's real estate. There's buildings. There's this. There's that. How they allocate overhead, even even things that are forward thinking, like social determinants. All those things, when you aggregate them together for cost, that same family trying to bring their, their child in for a broken leg, that goes into how they figure out their costs and then how they price. All these things have to be rethunk, as Rod said earlier, from the, the base up. Because, But this is the best chance we're ever going to get to do it because we need to yeah. rethink everything. And, and fortunately, Rod's at the forefront of doing a lot of these things. Um, so one of the things, Carlos, that makes a lot of sense so we look at we we would love global payments in our health system because we have we have doctors we have long term care we have community community care so one of the things that we argue about with the insurers are give us a percentage of premium and then let us manage the health of the people we're taking care of because what we'd rather do is take care of folks at home which we won't get paid for under the present system. We'd actually like to help them out with some of the social determinants because actually that return on investment is incredibly good. But, but Ron, so, let me ask you a question there. It can, um, not to interrupt, but should social determinants and some of the forward thinking investments be separated into different companies? Because as you look to get that return, like any other business, you have to allocate some of that cost to some of the basics for your, your base consumers, right? You know, the people you serve in the emergency room, the people that you want to offer primary care to, that kind of increases that cost, doesn't it? But, you know, my orientation would be if you separated social determinants and investments in new care and new therapies, then if there are different companies, you can go right to federal sources and go to other, you know, charitable, whatever sources to fund those independently and get that great return because it does provide a great return without impacting the costing or pricing of other more basic services. So, so actually, Mark, I think, you, I think some of that you can do. I think you can actually do both. But if you have a global payment, let's say if I had a global payment for you and your family and it required that, you know, we needed to do home care, we need to do home monitoring, we needed to actually get meals on wheels for you. I pay. I want to pay for that other global payment because right. actually from a health standpoint, you're going to do better. 
they'll come into the emergency room less. So this concept of global payment, particularly for large health systems, some of the ones you have in Texas and ours, it gives us a chance then to pay for some of those things out of the global payment that actually help the health of individuals. Right, so you're saying you'd get a, a price per family, you'd get an amount per family, and you'd have right. the responsibility for all the families in your area yeah. or in your hospitals. Right, and, and then all of those other things that we put under this rubric of social determinants actually have such a great return right. to do that because then we're actually getting paid. Right now, the way we get paid, I got to drag you into my office, I got to drag you into the hospital or the emergency room, but right. if I got paid for taking care of your health. Right, it's proactive versus reactive. Right. Yeah. Now the question then becomes, and Carlos, I'm sorry I'm taking your job here. The question, <laughs> the question then becomes, should that be run through an insurance company? Right? Because the, look, there's no insurance company in the history of insurance companies when given the choice between returning a dollar to shareholders or reducing the price of care or a premium is going to, you know, put that last dollar to someone's health care, right? They're, they're, they're trying to optimize their returns. through insurance companies. Mark, yeah. I want to put you on the spot here because you now have gone after them a couple of times and you and I have talked before about whether you were going to run for office. And for two seconds, I thought you were running. This <laughs> but then you decided not to. Would you go after the insurance industry? I mean, the insurance industry ran over President Clinton in 93, 94, um, President Obama decided to do a little bit of detente uh, with them in order to get Obamacare done. But if you did run, would you go right after the insurance industry? No, I'm not against insurance at all. It serves a role, but you just have to understand insurance is just that. It's a financial instrument. It's not a healthcare instrument. And once you understand it's just a financial conduit, then it just competes with other financial opportunities, including competing where the government needs to play its role. So I'm not against healthcare companies at all, but when they pretend to be, I mean, insurance companies at all, but when they pretend, pretend to be healthcare um, organizations, which they're not, that that's what creates the disconnect for me. But, but you and I know that, that the impact of what you're saying, if you if you applied it, would be to dramatically shrink that sector, right? I mean, you're, you're saying that there is- Actually, if you go back to what Rod said, and, and Rod, correct me if I'm wrong, they should be more profitable because Rod's taking a lot of the risk off of them and, and a lot of the reaction and a lot of, you know, what everybody talks about is the associated overhead of dealing with transactions, right? The coding and then dealing with each contract and re renegotiating each contract each and every year, which just adds to the administration costs. By doing the per caps um, and capitation and dealing with the, the approach that Rod had, all that gets just crushed and right. reduced significantly, right? Which, you know, which is bad for the insurance companies because they take their top line and then try to get a percentage of that. And so there's this misguided incentives where, you know, hospitals, I'm not saying Rob, you know, in a non-capitated um, environment, try to increase their revenues because they work on a percentage net and insurance companies, that's all they deal with, you know, when they look at their medical loss ratios, 15% of a bigger number is always a bigger number, you know? And so I think there's just misaligned incentives and that's what I'd address with insurance companies. Uh, um, um, guys, I'm gonna move the conversation just a little bit, but but I love that. And that's interesting to hear that uh, that piece of it, Mark. Rod, talk to me a little bit about mental health care. I know it's something that you've thought a lot about and I know you're thinking about it even as we're talking here, but a lot of people hearing us talk here would assume you're talking about diabetes, you're talking about stroke, you're talking about a lot of the physical uh, kind of uh, health care, but I assume you also are factoring in medical care here. And in fact, that might even be more important given what we've just gone through. Oh, absolutely. So I, I'd say two things. You know, when we did a merger uh, with St. Joseph Health in, about five years ago, we started the Wellbeing Trust. And we said, we're going to put a stake in the ground about mental health. We put $100 million to get it kicked off uh, to really bring this issue to the forefront. And what we're seeing, you know, what we're worrying about a lot with COVID is we're worrying about the, obviously, the deaths and disability coming out of COVID itself. We're worrying about all the concomitant uh, medical diseases that have been put off. But we're, what we're also is the next wave is what we call the deaths of despair. And those deaths of despair come from suicide, uh, alcoholism, and drug addiction. And we're going to see that wave, you know, what we're worried about with all what's going on, there's going to be a big wave of that. Mental health was a big problem that we were digging into uh, before COVID. 
we think it's even going to be a bigger issue later. About 30% of the people that we're seeing in our clinics and hospitals have some sort of concomitant behavioral or mental uh, problem that goes along with it, whether it's depression or others that are with it. And we think this has been a travesty in the United States that we really haven't dealt with mental health effectively. So we think that's an important part of anything we do to fix health care in the United States has to be the identification and working at mental health problems. So it's, it's a big deal for us. Mark, how do you think about this? Because you probably see it as someone who runs a, a complex organization. You know that your employees' mental health has a ton to do with their physical health, has a ton to do with their happiness, their productivity. How do you think about this mental health care question broadly and as it relates to to uh, to healthcare and insurance and all the things we were just talking I mean, about? Well, you know, how you feel above the neck is just as important as how you feel anywhere else. And because if if there's something wrong, you know, emotionally or any any perspective, you're not going to be effective. And you know, put aside the business side of it, you just, you know, I just try to be concerned for their well-being as a person. And it's really hard to to because it's so qualitative as opposed to quantitative, it's really hard to discern the best way to approach these things. And so, you know, when when I see Rod get into a lot of these things with Providence, that's a good thing, right? But it's still challenging because you know, you, you want to give your employees or your stakeholders, whoever, the best care, but it's hard to know what the best care is. And that's the biggest challenge from a business perspective. So we, we've been digging into this. You know, Carlos, I think one of the important things is our caregivers, particularly with COVID going on, the stress they're under. We actually put a, an online program in place for every one of our caregivers where they, depending on where they are on the spectrum of need, we can get them the appropriate care in place. And I would say we're get, doing a better job, Mark, about quantifying mental health issues. So if I look at your company or my people, the number one, two, and three medications that they're using are anti-anxiety medications and antidepressants. Yeah. So we're getting better at quantifying the degree, what are the interventions that can be used. And a lot of things, we talked about telehealth before, one of the areas where telehealth's been really effective has been mental health, particularly in young people. Young people would actually talk to a therapist or a nurse or a doctor on a screen, then have to walk into an office, say, oh, here I am, you know? So actually we're finding like with telepsychiatry and telepsychology, there's a lot of folks that are using that to, to, to good benefit. But we're starting to really dig into how we quantify uh, mental health, what are the issues that are out there? How do we find the early warning signs, particularly in children yep. and, and young adults? Uh, you know, it's, it's a, suicide's a leading cause of death in some of our young, young uh, you know, adolescents that are out there. So that's something we're really kind of think we can dig in on and we have to put yep. it out in the open. And, and I think mental health, you know, before if you had cancer, you never talked about it. Uh, if you had HIV, you never talked about it. I think mental health is that next frontier where people have to open up about, hey, you know, it's something we need to talk about. Yeah, I agree. It's it, and keep on going, Rod. I mean, the challenge again from our side is how do I choose Rod? How do I compare Rod's programs to X X company, Y company, and Z company? Because yeah. everybody's coming in saying they have the best solutions and they have the best insights into providing that care. So the more the more tools you give me to make a decision, Rod, right. the better decision I can make. Right. Hey, hey, hey Mark and Rod, I want to get personal for a little bit. I, I'm, I'm curious about how both of you came to be interested in, the, in these healthcare questions. And I could make assumptions, given that we all have our own health to think about and family members. But but Mark, clearly you've got a level of passion that that goes beyond just the casual. Look at this. I got my modern healthcare subscription right here. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, Rod, if, Rod, if you haven't spent time with Mark before, he seems to be a geek about just about everything. He seems oh, to absolutely. Be uh, readers yeah, about I, I'm amazed at, at how you can get up to speed on all this, Mark. It's amazing how you could do it because, you know, these are these are great issues. And it's so exciting to have you interested in healthcare, you know, we're, we're going to latch on to you, you know, as, I'm, <laughs> I know regret AHA, that. I'm going I'm to be on the phone with you. Uh, anytime, anytime. Well, I'll answer your question, Carlos, um, about three years ago, three years ago, when the whole repeal and replace thing was coming down 
And I started realizing that if there was a repeal and replace of ACA, they didn't have a solution. There was no response. So, I mean, just one of those days, it's like, okay, I'm an entrepreneur. How would I do it differently? And so the first question I asked was, what do I do for my companies and how is it working? As I mentioned earlier, we self-insure. And then I just started digging in more and more and more. Now it's been, you know, three and a half years um, of just geeking out on healthcare every chance I get and, you know, battling it out with Zeke Emanuel about the positives and negatives of the ACA, going to these conferences and, you know, going back and forth, um, digging in with the RAND Corporation, you know, and, and everybody, when I come in, everybody takes my call, right? But nobody really thinks I'm serious. And so I have to be that person that really gets down into the weeds of all this stuff and truly understands the numbers and the impacts and the results um, in order for people to take me seriously. And so, so that kind of propelled me. And, and Rod, what about you? I mean, I know you're a physician and obviously I know long before you were an executive, uh, um, you were actually delivering healthcare. But how did you get into it? Was your mom a doctor, your dad a medical no. professional? How did you? you... Know, I, I'm the son of two immigrants that came to this country after World War II in 1950. And, um, you know, both kind of, you know, said, and for my dad, I had two choices was lawyer or doctor. And I went with doctor, you know, and uh, you know, that was it. So, you know, whatever. And when I was 16 years old, we had a program. Uh, I grew up on Long Island, you know, I was born in New York and it was called the Doctors of Tomorrow where uh, uh, physicians were mentors to high school students. And I spent a summer with an orthopedic surgeon when I was 16 years old and that was it. And I said, okay, this is what I'm gonna do for the rest of my life. and. I think it's really helped me as a CEO to have touched, talked to families. I still have patients that write me notes that I took care of 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And so that I think it's in healthcare that, you know, we have some clinicians that have come into this because they've actually been with families. They know, know what's there. But at the same token, what I love about folks like Mark is that a lot of folks that are new to healthcare, uh, so I've been hiring people like crazy from Microsoft, from Amazon, from T-Mobile up here, because I know what I know about healthcare. I want them to challenge me about what we're doing. So it's been a great mix of tech people and healthcare people. When you put those two together, magic happens, because we both kind of teach each other about what's going on. Uh, and I think that's uh, you know some of the breakthroughs that I see as we need to really reform and change healthcare we got to get the technology people. We got to get people like Mark together with the folks that have been at it for forty years, like me. When we get together, it's kind of exciting. Wait till I tell you, Rod. Wait till I tell you about the API we're building in Dallas for hard to get drugs, right. um, and the drugs we're going to give away. Yeah, so we're going to do a whole cost plus drug company. Um, we've already started building it out in Dallas, um, and then on top of that, we're, we have some E. coli specimens that for insulin that if we can get to work hopefully will be some game-changing things there as well. It's fantastic. And what I found with COVID is the collaboration that's going on now. Crazy. People are each other in the scientific community. You know, we got our, all of our clinicians and scientists from seven states all working together on projects. The minute COVID hit, you know what the first thing we did was? We called all the scientists in Italy and China and the clinicians and said, okay, you guys have been at this for a while. Tell us what we need to know. We think some of our results were better because we actually talked to the folks that were doing this stuff. So it's really the, the, the good thing coming out of this is this collaboration about how to figure out how do we get drug costs down. We started a company called Civica RX. Yep, I know Civica really well. Yeah. Right. So we said, hey, we can't put up with generic drugs. The folks at Intermountain said, are you guys in? I said, I'm in. Yep. And it's been a great example of how we collaborate. We think this around healthcare data that we got to get the big health systems together to figure out how to use this information in a way, what I would say for good, not evil, to really figure out how to accelerate change in healthcare. So those are the things that for me are exciting uh, out, of, out of all the things that are happening. Hey, hey Rod Mark, I know we are coming uh, close to conclusion here. I want to uh, hit you guys with a couple of uh, rat-a-tat-tat uh, questions. Uh -huh don't mind. And, uh, and so Mark, I'm going to start with you. I'm going to give you my, uh, my hot six and I'd love your immediate quick take. So, sure. uh, you know, one sentence, uh, or less, uh, has Texas managed its COVID response well or not? Medium. Medium. Uh, uh, what happens to hospitals, 
um, over the next uh, decade? Are there more of them, uh, less of them, about the same in terms of the physical structures? Um, fewer hospitals, more um, remote facilities. Uh, what country in the world do you think has impressed you in the midst of this uh, COVID response? Um, are you paying attention to? Um, I don't know enough. I, I haven't clo been played close enough attention that side. Uh, how bad is this recession uh, going to be? Worse. Worse. How long do you think until we see a recovery, if you had to guess today? Depends what the, the federal government does. If we have a federal, a transitional federal jobs program, three years. If we don't, um, and we just leave it to entrepreneurs and guys like me, pure laissez-faire, five or six. Uh, uh, last of your hot take questions. Uh, what are the chances that you uh, leave basketball behind now that you put in Luca's hands and uh, and you focus all your time on uh, on healthcare going forward? Zero, negative, <laughs> zero. Yeah. If I didn't have an outlet, I'd go nuts. <laughs> I love you that. You got a game, right? You see me scream at the referees the whole game. I do. That's how I de-stress. I do. I do. All right, we're gonna come back to the basketball in a minute, and I'm gonna put you on the spot on your TikTok dancing. I caught you dancing on TikTok. With your daughter, you did all right, though. She did better, but you did all right. Um, uh, uh, Rod, let me let me come to you. Sure. Same sort of um, thing, a couple of hot takes here. Uh, um, Rod, homelessness, uh, will it get better? Will it get worse over the next year, given all the various factors that are at play? It's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, uh, uh, talk to me about funding. Do you expect to see a surge of healthcare funding from the Trump administration to help deal with with all that's happening in and around COVID? I think it's gonna be an ongoing struggle and we've gotta keep educating as to what we have, but I think it's gonna be a struggle. I, I know you and every other healthcare professional is worried about a reoccurrence in the fall. On a scale of one to 10, 10 being the worst, how worried are you about a, a, um, a, a very damaging reoccurrence? I'm a five. Uh, we gotta get on influenza vaccines now so that we take some of that out of the equation. I think we're smarter than we were three or four months ago. So I put it at a five. Um, uh, one of the, we talk, you talked about the fact that there are a lot of things that um, haven't gone away, but we just may not be seeing. You talked about strokes and other things. Give me two or three other things that are unfortunately not being focused on now and that this summer we're going to have to uh, address maybe differently than we have over the last three or four months. So mental health, big, you know, is going to be a crisis there. And the other one I worry about are uh, cancer patients. They've been putting off treatments. You know, a lot of biopsies haven't been getting done. And that's one of those things, Carlos, we won't see maybe this year, but it's one of those things we're going to see a year or two from now. All of a sudden, some of the good results that we've been having, uh, we're not, you know, we're, we're going to see some, some, some uh, disturbing trends. Um, uh, Mark, help me uh, wrap up here. We talked about a lot. You guys have made me think about the level of collaboration that's happened here. You've made me think about some of the policy choices that maybe we have uh, going forward, which is kind of interesting. Rod, mass, right? Here's the question I have on mass. On one hand, I get why everybody wants to use them, right? You protect everybody else. Yep. You're sick. But on the other hand, I'm reading more and more about viral load, right? Yep. That the, the level of sickness or impact is dependent on viral load. But the question I don't know is if you're if you are sick and you're asymptomatic and you don't really know it and you put on a mask, which means in essence you're confining your own personal viral load. Can you make your own sickness worse? Look for it, data, and I haven't seen that. No, you know it's and it's so variable. You know when we think about this viral load issue, I think you know what we're going to find, and we're doing, actually doing some studies here in Seattle. It's, it's a difference in your own immune system to the way you react to. I think that's going to be a bigger factor than viral load. So, yeah, viral load will play a, a, a role. But we've seen folks that have had relatively little exposure that have a really incredible response to this virus and end up being really sick. So we're going to understand more about the differences in, in our immunity amongst individuals. And we're actually doing work in the lab to look at that, to see what are the genetic factors that make my immune system different than yours. Right. We get the same exposure, yet we get a different reaction. So uh, not a factor. If we can get the masks on, it really does help in terms of transmission rates. 
particularly in, inter, in inside environments where we have a harder time controlling the density of people. Okay, one more. See, Carlos, I'm throwing out all my conspiracy <laughs> theories, right? I love it. I love I it. Go get get them. Them. I don't get access to the expert. Go get them. Go get them. Go get them. Meatpacking plants, right? And right. so we've seen meatpacking plants, not just in the United States, but around the world, right? And as a business guy, just looking at their, their um, economic drive, it would seem to me that those packing plants would do everything possible from keeping those line workers get sick, right? Yet right. you're seeing a recurrence of it in meatpacking plants over and over again. Is it conceivable that it's jumping from, just like it went from a bat to a human, is it conceivable it's jumping from cattle to human? No, no. I think that the real problem there that we face is there's so many asymptomatic carriers so that, you know, we think we've got everyone and all of a sudden there's another outbreak because there's someone who's asymptomatic. So what I would be doing if I had a meatpacking plant, I'd really be testing. And we've done this in nursing homes, when we test everyone or able to do that, we get a handle around who's asymptomatic, who's not. And then in the workplace itself, you know, separation helps, mask helps. In a, in a place like a meatpacking plant, shields, you got to have shields. Those are the places where I would suit my folks up a little bit the way we suit up some of our folks in the hospital right. to be able to do that. See, this but, is the one I'm going to disagree with you on. I sure. just, just looking at the numbers and look, I'm just guessing more than anything else, right? Just hypotheses. I'm, I'm going to guess that this was around longer and that there's a transmission there that, that is happening because it's just happening to you. It's just happening in too many places how that long, are taking those precautions. How long? So the other one that I'll tell you is then there's different populations that unfortunately are more subject to COVID than others. So it's a lot of our service workers and particularly disproportionately um, African Americans and Hispanic right. Americans are in those jobs in those meatpacking plants. Right. They also live in homes where there's multi generational. Right. That was right. some of the more susceptible. We transmitted. So, I, yeah. so I think there's other factors, but it's always important to kind of look at all the variables that are there. Right. But right. we're seeing some of the same things in assembly plants, like we saw the Ford plant have to close down sure. again. So it's about so I more than likely it has more to do with proximity. The population of folks that have to work there, all of those. You're things. saying there's a chance. So there's, <laughs> you, know, you know, like I would say, as scientists and clinicians, what we try to do is weigh the probabilities. Right. And that's right. what we're trying to tell the public. We can never make it completely safe, but we know we can do a lot of things to keep it relatively safe. So you're it, absolutely it, right. It, it, well, right. Thanks for thanks for hearing me out of my little conspiracy theory. <laughs> I appreciate it. I, I had to be able to dispel those or have an, a, a, a smart opinion on them, response to them. Um, right. Hey, hey Rod, um, um, I know we're wrapping up, but I, I want to go back to what you talked about in terms of racial disparities. And you talked about the number of African-Americans and Latinos who often are on the front lines who've been disproportionately in many cases impacted, including death. Um, uh, do you think this leads to any fundamental change uh, in terms of racial equity in our healthcare system going forward? And then, Mark, I, I want to hear you on the same question. Um, uh, uh, is there an opportunity in the same way that there may be changes in digital health, there may be changes in financing um, in our healthcare system coming out of this COVID, there may be changes in collaboration, even in testing? Any changes in in, um, in racial disparities uh, going forward, Rod? Do you think? And, yeah. I mean, real change, not not just not just um, talk, but any real change you think that will happen as a result I, of this? Yeah, I do. I I do. You know, when I think about all our, you know, what are some of the benefits that can come out of this? We've been talking a lot about racial inequities in terms of treatment before this. What COVID's done is really highlighted it. So we think it's a it's a, it's like with mental health, it's a now issue that's not going to go away. So we're really going to continue to push on that. I'm going to look at all the issues around how how care really needs to be democratized uh, amongst folks, and we've got to own up to those facts that there are inequities in the type of care that's being given, and it's been highlighted what we've seen in COVID because when when I look around the country, if you look at New York, you look at Detroit. You look at which hospitals in in New York that disproportionately had most of the COVID patients. It was I grew up in the city. It was Elmhurst. It was Jamaica. It was those hospitals that were serving disproportionately the, the poor and vulnerable population. So we're going to keep on this topic, and we're not going to let it go. 
Mark, how do you think about that? Because I know you and I have talked about that before in the entrepreneurial world. What are the possibilities for kind of bridging that gap? How do you think about that in healthcare? I mean, I'll look at it from the corporate perspective because companies are going to have to be a lot smarter because, you know, you're if you don't take if you're, you're if you're not more compassionate about your lowest paid employees, you know, they're they're the ones that are most at risk, as, as everybody knows, as Roz has confirmed, you know, they're taking public transportation. They're in multifamily households or larger family households. They have lower income. And so they're able to take fewer precautions. They have to go to work. You know, they, they have to take more risks in order to feed their families and pay their bills. And when you add all that up, that introduces more risks in the corporate environment. So if companies aren't more compassionate and don't take better care of their workers, don't pay them more so they don't have these same obstacles, then they're putting their entire corporation and business at risk. And so smart companies are going to do that. You know, companies who haven't figured it out are going to find themselves in a lot facing a lot of problems financially because as we've seen with you know the aforementioned meatpacking plants and nursing homes those businesses are getting decimated because they weren't smart enough to address these issues from the bottom up hey hey rod i know that we are at the end of the hour here but 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 bring us to conclusion what, what did we not talk about um, uh, uh, today that you wish we had, had raised um, uh, as we finish up. And then, Mark, uh, I'm going to come to you with the same question. I know we got to a lot of good things today, but but what did we not get to, Rod, that we should have so, touched so on? Well, I think collectively as a nation, we need to really rethink things about our supply chain, particularly in healthcare, that we have got to. Is It is, to me, unconscionable that the United States was brought to it its knees on $2 masks and $5 gowns. And I, to me, I just shake my head. And that one isn't on one person or another. It's on all of us, that we should never allow ourselves to be that dependent on things that are going to happen somewhere else. So whether it's on pharmacy, drug supply, medical supply, uh, and then I, you know, listen, I'd rather, I want to pay extra if something's made within the United States. I think we're going to see a lot more of that. And then I think a little bit of a movement from, you know, necessarily everything being more shareholder value to a little bit of more what's the common good. And the common good, you know, has a real return on investment in the long term for the country. Mm -hmm. Mark, Mark, when I heard him say that, I heard Oak Cliff. I heard I, I, I married uh, Rob, what you were saying was, should we set up a factory uh, in Oak Cliff? Should Mark and and you and I, should three of us set something up there where we're actually producing, Mark, uh, uh, this PPE that we need? You know, is is there that kind of opportunity when you talk about creating new healthcare companies? Should we go exactly into the communities that are most at risk and create some interesting economic opportunity there to actually address the uh, the larger need? Well, of course, to Rod's point, right, when you when you do when you're smart about things and you look at the greater good, you do get a return on investment. And we're only good as a community, as a country, as our weakest links, because all of our costs, all of our productivity challenges come from having to readdress people who fall through the cracks. That always that holds us back. And that's unfortunate. Hopefully we'll take this kind of reset we're going through economically and use that as a, as a means of becoming more a more compassionate capitalist society, because I truly think that this is going to create unique opportunities that when we look back in 20 years, there'll be 10, 20, 30, 50, who knows how many companies that are world changing, world class companies, because the one thing this country does better than every other country in the world is start businesses. We are entrepreneurs at our core. And so you know, those folks out there, you know, and, and then the next question becomes, where are those great ideas come from? They're going to come from some 16 or even a 61 year old kid or person who's broke, stuck, and everybody thinks they're crazy and is going to have that world changing idea makes it happen. So as horrific as it is, as difficult as this is, I agree with Rod. It's, there's so many opportunities that we can fix ourselves, but there's so many opportunities that we can create to make it even better. And hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll just We'll see them and we'll enable them and that'll take us to a better place. Um, guys, thank you uh, both. And I'm going to have to end on a little basketball here because, Mark, you know I'm a junkie too. <laughs> I, know you are. I know Rod enjoys it too. 
All right, Mark, you saw during this uh, close down here, everybody was talking about the all-time greats. Where are you putting LBJ on your list of all-time greats? Let's uh, let's get okay, to so that. I'm, I'm going to hedge. I said if I start a team from scratch, I start with um, Michael Jordan. If I have a team that is already good and I need a finished piece to, to win a lot of championships, I go with um, – LeBron, because LeBron has a better at better basketball IQ. Um, Michael wait, has wait, 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 wait. You're going with LeBron over MJ? In no, the- as a finishing piece, right? So if I've got if I like if if I if I had the Celtics from the 80s and I needed one more piece, and I would take LeBron because he knows he's more of a distributor, he makes everybody on the court better. If I needed one guy to start a team around or to carry a team, I'm going with Michael Jordan because Michael Jordan can carry a team better than LeBron can. All right, Rod. Rod, you finish us off. Give us your all-time five. Uh, <laughs> Rod, Rod who's, who's your starting five? Um, uh, <laughs> well, well, all I can say, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna be a grandfather for the first time in October. Okay. My daughter lives in Chicago, and it's gonna be a boy. She she already let us know, and she's already got the first name, and it's Jordan. Oh, so right. really good at that. So. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Uh, guys, hey, thank you so much for such a, a thoughtful conversation. Uh, Rod, you know I've always loved what Providence St. Joseph stands for. I love how you guys started off uh, with, as I call it, a bunch of renegade nuns um, <laughs> 60 years ago. And Mark, as you said, sometimes it's the people on the outside who create the biggest, longest-lasting change. And and uh, PSJH uh, obviously uh, represents that in the best way. So uh, thanks to both of you, and thanks to all the good folks who uh, made this happen today. Thanks, Rod. Thanks, Carlos. Thanks, Thanks, Mark.